1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with William Seeley, who is Associate Professor at the University of Southern Maine, we're talking about his new book, Attentional Engines, A Perceptual Theory of the Arts, which is just out from Oxford University Press. How do we distinguish art from non-art artifacts, and what does cognitive science have to do with it? In Attentional Engines, Seely offers a cognitive science-based account of how we engage with art, what it is that artworks do, and what artists do to make sure they do it. In his Diagnostic Recognition Framework for Locating Art, artworks are communicative devices in which artists embed perceptual cues that enable the perceiver to categorize the work as intended and thereby unlock its meanings. Seeley considers how his framework might handle conceptual art, what goes wrong when a novice about art perceives an artwork, and the relation between the neuroscience of art and neuroaesthetics. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Bill Seeley. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy.
2: Hi, thanks, Carrie. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm looking forward to our discussion about attentional engines. Um, Before we get to the book itself, tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your philosophical interests in general, um, and the writing in this book. And, you know, one of the points that you make, you know, early in the book, you know, in the introduction, I think, is you know, you're a sculptor, you're, you've been an artist. So, you know, a lot of the, the topic of the book is close to your heart, but you also have both artistic background as well as philosophical background. So, um, so yeah, tell us about Bill Seeley. Uh,
2: okay, well, um, I started my professional life as a sculptor in New York, uh, and, I, and I worked as an artist assistant for many different artists, uh, and one thing that was particularly interesting and fascinating to me actually was that when you walked into a studio and started working, you may know something about the artwork, but you you might not really know the ins and the outs of it. Um, but pretty soon after you started uh, working for that artist and started working on that art, you learned a whole lot about uh, the background information that went into making it and the choices that the artist made in building those sculptures. And what was curious to me is that you gained an affinity for work that you might even early on have walked into just thinking of a job. Uh, And so uh, so not too long after I had been doing this, I became kind of interested in how artworks work, how artworks work to sort of convey information and pass that information along to us. Uh, And so as a result, after working as an artist for a number of years in New York, I went back to school took a PhD and started thinking about art as a philosopher interested in cognitive science uh, and philosophy of mind. And it just so happened that when it came time for me to write a PhD, uh, a couple of fairly well-known neurophysiologists wrote a couple of books about art and what we now call neuroaesthetics uh, was born. Uh, And so there was a nice sort of convergence of events that uh, drove me into into this field and And after about 10 years of writing on it, I ended up writing a book, collecting my thoughts that I'd been writing about into what I hope is a coherent model for a neuroscience of the arts.
1: Excellent. Um, So that kind of gets to my next, um, you know, general issue is uh, you specify that it's a book in the neuroscience of art rather than neuroaesthetics. Could you clarify that distinction?
2: Yeah. So... um, Within the philosophy of art, uh, we have sort of two names that we sometimes use. We use the term aesthetics to refer to the field, uh, but we also use the term philosophy of art. And uh, in some way, these terms are used interchangeably uh, to refer to philosophical discussions of art, uh, but more technically, and when you sort of get down to the brass tacks of it, there are two different ways of approaching studying art. Um, Aesthetics uh, turns out to be kind of a narrower way um, of thinking about art. So the, the study of aesthetics is the study of the relationship uh, between aesthetics and art, between the relationship between sort of aesthetic properties and aesthetic experiences and aesthetic expression uh, and, and art. And so uh, if you have an aesthetic theory of art, what you think is that artworks are artifacts that are intentionally designed to either carry aesthetic properties or trigger aesthetic experiences. And and you think really that the definition of art and the value of art is tied up uh, with this notion of aesthetics. Uh, And this is a traditional way of thinking of art. Uh, A lot of people think it's our folk view of art. It's what the average person thinks of art. Uh, But the study of philosophy of art is broader than that. The study of philosophy of art includes the study of aesthetics but it also includes uh, the study of a range of ontological issues pertaining to art that are broader than aesthetics. Questions about how artworks carry and convey uh, expressive emotional properties, questions about why we have uh, emotional attachments to characters, Uh, questions about how we disambiguate artworks uh, from non-art artifacts, which is equally important in aesthetics as it is in uh, art more generally, because we think of lots of things as aesthetically interesting as, as right, we think of cars and mountain landscapes as aesthetics. So, uh, a definition of aesthetics isn't necessarily going to help us do that disambiguation uh, work. So, I, I think that's I, I can stop there. There's there's more to say about about that. Uh,
1: well, that's you know, I mean, I think we'll we're, we'll be getting into the neuroscience of art. Um, uh, but if you could. You know, so the neuroscience of art is more specifically, uh, the response, the responses that we have to art that can
2: be measured in neuroscience. Uh, well, so as it so happens, uh, people who work in neuroaesthetics hold an aesthetic theory of art. So they think artworks are defined definitionally, intrinsically, um, aesthetic objects and they think that if you explain how they work as aesthetic objects you will have explained art uh, and there are uh, there are a couple sort of there are a couple wrinkles in the road for them uh, in thinking about that the the first one is just to notice uh, that it just isn't the case that all artworks are esthetic It isn't the case that all artworks are aesthetic objects um, I could stop, I suppose, and and think of an example. But certainly the history of 20th century art is the history of anti aesthetic movements in art, artworks that are intended to be uh, seen not as aesthetic objects. Uh, And so uh, it is the case that neuroscience of art is interested in understanding uh, sort of how we interact with artworks, how we collect information from artworks, from a neurophysiological perspective. uh, But The central idea for neuroaesthetics is that artworks are aesthetic objects. And what you're explaining Mm -hmm. when you explain this is your aesthetic engagement with artworks, whereas a philosophy of art or a neuroscience of art, uh, sees the range of ways that we interact with artworks and the range of objects that artworks are as broader, as bigger. Uh, so it's more, someone in a neuroscience of art might be more interested in just information, how we collect information from artworks, not just aesthetic objects.
1: Good. Um, so that, that was good. Um, so the, the, I guess the thread that I saw kind of running through the book is what you call the puzzle of locating art. And, um, you have a theory, you know, which you're addressing that puzzle and then you apply it to various arts. Um, what is the puzzle of locating art? What, what is it that we're trying to explain here?
2: Right. So, um. The puzzle of locating art uh, probably uh, traces itself back farther than this, but certainly in uh, philosophy of art traces itself back to Wittgenstein um, and and, and writing uh, by George Dickey uh, about empirical aesthetics, about psychology of art in in the middle of the 20th century. And it's taken up more recently uh, by people like Alvin Noé uh, in talking about neuroscience of art and the 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 central notion to the puzzle of locating art is something like, uh, if we're going to build an explanation of art, the sort of minimal requirement for the explanation is that it allows us to disambiguate artworks uh, from other sorts of things. Uh, And the idea is that if we look for our understanding of art, if we look for explanations of art in the sort of common perceptual and cognitive mechanisms, the ordinary uh, psychological interactions we have with artworks, we're gonna find that it's the same set of processes that are involved with interacting with artworks that are involved with looking at things in the ordinary environment or making ordinary judgments. So that at the end of the day, those explanations won't suffice to disambiguate uh, artworks uh, from other things. So for instance, if I um, can explain to you how you see depth in a painting I haven't disambiguated the painting from a picture on the front page of the newspaper. haven't told me anything interesting. And so the idea here is is that there's a question about what we have to focus our attention on in order to locate the art of an artwork, in order to to locate the features of an artwork that are sort of uh, defining for it as an artwork as opposed to just an ordinary kind of stimulus. So... Uh, In the book, I sort of call this the common perceptual mechanisms argument, the idea that if we explain, for instance, how a representational painting suffices to be representational, it doesn't disambiguate paintings from photographs. Uh, And so it doesn't suffice to locate art in the lab. The ordinary way we think that we locate art in the lab, and this goes back to Wittgenstein, it's certainly something that Alva has talked about uh, quite a bit in recent years, is we ask, how that artifact is located in the context of the range of norms and conventions that govern our behaviors with it. And so we think we have these evaluative norms and conventions that enable us to interact with it, understand what it means, and evaluate whether it's been done or been uh, or, or been done poorly, been done well or been done poorly. And the idea is that uh, when we explain how we perceive an artwork, uh, we don't really get at the way it works in this way these are things that happen separately these require broader social explanations than uh the psychology of perception might offer us so the question is what would we need to explain in order to locate art in the lab
1: you know okay right. and and um how how does cognitive science you know kind of come into this
2: Right. Well, uh, so I so my thought uh, in thinking about all this is that we can um, we can sort and understand we can shift the focus of attention to locate art in the lab uh, by noticing uh, the role that categories of art and background knowledge and our understanding of norms and conventions uh, plays in perception. So the way I think that we probably should think about this is that. artworks are communicative events. They're they're artifacts designed to express ideas. This isn't an idea that's unique to me. It's an idea that's pervasive throughout the philosophy of art. Uh, The idea is that artworks are vehicles of communication in a loosely Gracian uh, framework for communication, where what what it is to recognize uh, what an artwork means is to recognize an artist intended us to interpret it against a background of knowledge. Of some sort and so if we think of cognitive science as the study of the way organisms acquire represent uh and use information uh in the environment if you have sort of a basic computational view of cognition then you can think that what artists do when they build their uh, artworks is they right they build these artifacts that carry information they carry information about what they mean Uh, And what cognitive science can contribute is an understanding of how consumers, uh, educated and non-educated art viewers, uh, acquire, represent and use information carried in the surface of the canvas to recognize what it means. Uh, So now, if we do this, we shift attention from how we perceptually interact with the artwork. And these are works of fine arts. So we're perceiving them, uh, I suppose. In literature, it'd be a question of how we recover the lexical elements that underwrite the syntax and surface semantics of the of the text, right? So we can shift attention from how we perceptually recognize the content of an artwork um, to how the artwork is being used to convey um, some meaning, some idea, uh, some point, or some purpose. And the idea is that we do this by uh, using our knowledge of categories of art of the kinds of norms and conventions that govern expression within different schools and genres uh to perceptually interact with the work
1: okay well, that was good um so your this kind of leads us directly to your theory uh or i should say well you call it a framework the diagnostic recognition framework um, could you say a bit about that? And you, you also bring in uh, the idea of, um, uh, what was it, uh, attentional biasing as well, right, in, in terms of perception. Mm-hmm. So could you, could you tell us about your, your diagnostic recognition framework?
2: Yeah. Um, well, let's see if I can do this without digging too deep into the weeds um, of, of all this stuff. So uh, the reason I call it a diagnostic recognition framework and, and, you know, all models need a cute name, I suppose. So it's the diagnostic recognition framework for engaging art, which is intended uh, to be a little bit of an equivocation. So it's a story about how we engage with artwork that's supposed to explain to us why we find them um, so engaging. But the reason it's called a diagnostic recognition framework is it's derived from. Uh, from some research by a fellow named Philippe Shins at University of Glasgow, uh, Mm -hmm. who sort of developed this model for thinking about the relationship between categorization processing and perceptual recognition studies, because he thought these two things were were complementary to one another. And I suppose the easiest way uh, to talk about it is that he thinks that in any context, uh, perceptual recognition involves the interplay of what from a computational perspective, we might call task demands or just the sort of information needs of your behavior and what information is available in in, in the environment, perceptually available in the environment. And so the idea is that under certain sorts of behaviors, different kinds of information are salient to perceptual recognition than under other sorts of behaviors. Uh, and so that how you contextualize, um, while you contextualize the task that you're engaged in is going to change what's relevant to your behavior in the environment. And that, uh, what this does is it makes certain sets of information in the environment, uh, relevant to perceptual recognition so that instead of having to sort of model, uh, the whole environment in order to recognize things, these little bits of information will, will suffice. Uh, so the example I, I, I often give is that if I want to shake hands with my brother, um, I don't need to represent the text on his T-shirt, that's not relevant to my task. Uh, But I do need to be able to track his hand, look at his grip scale. And I probably need to see something about the expression on his face to see whether he has a mischievous smile to tell me, you know, instead of shaking my hand, he's going to flick my nose or something, right? Uh, And so the sort of task of shaking hands with my brother has these information needs that make certain bits of information uh, informative to my task. And that's going to be different, for instance, uh, than a say I ran into you carry at a conference and we were going to shake hands to say hello, after a number of years, I don't think I'd uh, be so worried that you were going to flip me in the nose or something, the task
1: demands <laughs>
2: are going to be you never. know. Yeah. You do never know, you do never know. So anyway, uh, the story there is that when we uh, so if when we look at a painting, the idea here is that certain bits of information are contextually relevant to different things that we might do to it. If we're looking at a a painting as a realistic representation of uh, the environment, not as an artwork so much as a document, an archival document of the spot, uh, different bits of information on canvas are gonna be salient. And the thought is that this is gonna change the way we attend to its surface. So uh, if artworks are communicative events, we wanna know what the artist meant by representing something in that particular way. We want to know what the choices the artist made were in rendering the environment in that particular way. And so we need to have a way of kind of attending to the surface in the right way to see how it's intended to uh, carry information. And the thought, that, the, the thought in the diagnostic recognition framework is that when artists make their artworks, they uh, embed categorical cues. They embed cues to what category, what style, what genre of of art they intend us to interpret the artwork as, and that these um, unlock recipes for how to look at the artwork and which features are salient, which features um, are, are relevant. So the Diagnostic Recognition Framework for Engaging Art suggests that artworks are attentional engines in the sense that artists embed information Uh, that's diagnostic for categorizing the work as one kind of work as opposed to another. And this changes how we attend to the surface and how we assign meaning to its features. Uh, And notice this is really different than the basic neuroesthetics model that says, I can tell you how different artists use different strategies to get you to see depth in the canvas. It gives us a richer, more semantically uh, nuanced understanding of art. So I think the last piece of the question you had had to do with attentional biasing So if we think of a diagnostic recognition framework for object recognition as a a story about how minimal sets of diagnostic cues in the environment are sufficient for recognizing an object, uh, we need to have a story about how we direct attention and pick just those pieces out uh, in different sorts of contexts. And the thought uh, that I've had is that a biased competition theory of selective attention Uh, gives us an implementation model to explain how this goes. And the loose story of a biased competition theory of selective attention is that perception is underwritten uh, by fast fast sort of loops through the perceptual system. So, perceptual information is collected quickly, it's shunted forward to prefrontal areas where object recognition might happen. We have very fast, coarse perceptual recognition of kind of the category of thing we're looking at and that the sort of associated knowledge about the world, uh, biases sensory processing through top-down feedback in a way that enhances the perception of features of the environment that are salient to your task and through lateral inhibition actually inhibits the perception of things in the environment that are irrelevant and would suffice, that would be distractors to figuring out uh, what you need uh, to see. And so the idea is that when we categorize an artwork as one kind as opposed to another, this is going to enhance the perceptual processing of the features salient to understanding uh, what it meant for an artist to have used it as an expressive uh, device and direct your attention away from other stuff. So I hope that didn't get too far into the weeds. uh, No, that was great. It was adequate.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: you know sort of a philosophy of art aesthetics question I mean so you've 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 described artworks as you know communicative devices like like many other things as well um, so that doesn't pick them out specifically um, um, and that of course it, is an idea that that I at least and others you know associate with Tolstoy's you know theory of art um, uh, but another thing you know even more than that um, but th- that is. You know part of the question um is you know walt kendall walton's you know very influential paper categories of art um which you you know so you mention, you do mention him briefly um later on in the book um so how how does your approach um like what are the you know where are you sharing and where are you disagreeing in terms of the ideas that you know that Tolstoy put forward for communication. I mean, for him it was emotion in particular, but that that could be easily generalized. Um, but um, besides that, Walton himself, you know, I mean, uh, um, uh, you know, made made clear how important it was in order to to perceive an artwork correctly, to be able to um, see what you know, see it through a particular category, right? He has the famous Guernica's example. Um, so could you, could you locate your theory and your approach in relation to, to those philosophers that, you know, that people might be familiar with from philosophy of art?
2: Yeah, I, I think those are, those are great um, suggestions and great places to look. I'm going to take a little detour uh, uh, before I get to Tolstoy and Walton through Arthur Danto and Noel Carroll. Uh, and maybe it won't be, maybe it won't be a detour. Well,
1: Danto's in there though.
2: Danto's kind of my next question, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's germane to answering this question. So, uh, before I take the the detour, um, I think the theory that I'm after is broader than Tolstoy's theory. Tolstoy, uh, seems to have thought that we need to, um, and I'm going to give a, you, you know, an introduction to philosophy of art, uh, Tolstoy here. So I, you know, I'm happy to back up and say something more nuanced as the conversation goes along. Uh, but Tolstoy seems to have thought that the way we would express an emotion would be we would kind of imagine it and and use this outside vehicle, this this sort of this thing outside the experience of that emotion to to make it concrete in our mind's eye. So there's sort of an explicit attempt to retell the story from a concrete position to to make this emotion concrete and to Infect other people with the emotion, and, and the thought that 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 I have, I think is broader than that. I, I think the thought is um, that categories of art um, categories of art are defined uh, loosely by a set of productive conventions for making artworks of a certain kind. They're developed through an interplay, a back and forth interplay uh, with consumers of art. So it. It works, it doesn't work, it works, it doesn't work. And so the categories of art are sort of these sort of tacit sets of conventions we have uh, for governing our just communicative exchange um, among, among folks. So that it, artworks carry this information uh, just naturally in the way we use them as expressive devices and not in such an explicit way as Tolstoy uh, was talking about. Uh, but let me t- come back and, and run through my detour. Uh, So uh, when we think about um, how we locate this and in particular how we disambiguate the diagnostic recognition framework for engaging art, from just a discussion of communication generally, I think that uh, Arthur Danto's sort of three criteria for disambiguating, for understanding artworks, maybe not disambiguating is a better way of saying it, um, are are a nice place to start. So uh, Danto... uh, wrote in the 1960s about the art world and about uh, what it was to make an artwork was to make an artifact that was intended to be contextualized in a particular atmosphere of theory against a particular background of knowledge Uh, later he wrote um, a paper called i think it's called art and meaning uh it was in a a book uh, edited by noel carroll called theories of art today uh, and in it he says, there are these sorts of three things that an artifact have to meet in order to be counted as an artwork. He didn't think this was a definition of art. He just thought it was a set of heuristic rules, a heuristic framework for thinking of how to identify uh, something as an artwork as opposed to something else. Uh, and the first was that he thought it had to have aboutness and aboutness just meant it had to Convey something it had to have a point or purpose, uh, he says it has to have a content sometimes we say it has to have a meaning, but sometimes that can be a little overwrought because that can suggest we mean it has to have some propositional meaning, some explicitly modelable semantic meaning propositional uh, meaning of some sort, and all he really meant was that it, it, it had to have a directed point or purpose. The purpose of an artwork could be uh, you know to cause an aesthetic experience it could be to cause us to reflect on something. It doesn't have to have this sort of semantic meaning, it just has to be made for a reason. Uh, and the reason being to express or convey this point or purpose. And then he said, look, because it's an artwork, because it's an artifact, uh, it's not just that it has to have this point of purpose, it has to recognizably embody that point or purpose. We have to be able to see in the artwork uh, that it embodies that point or purpose so that we can recover the information I don't think he would have talked in such a cognitive science way, Uh, but so we can recover the information necessary to recover that uh, point of purpose from it. It's point of purpose has to somehow be um, transparent in it. But he thought this was actually a rather complex piece of the puzzle. Uh, And so he talks about advertising and marketing, and he says, of course, we notice uh, that marketing campaigns and advertising and just the design of uh, boxes for things like Brillo or or other sorts of cleaning supplies, uh, carry and convey the meaning of the ad campaign or journalistic photographs. The, the picture on the front page of a newspaper isn't just a, it's not just an archival photograph. They've chosen that photograph to say something about, about its subject. And so we said, look, just the fact, um, that an artifact is about something and embodies its meaning isn't sufficient, um, For us to recognize it as an artwork, rather, it's that we contextualize it against a body of practices, against an atmosphere of theory so that we recognize that the way it's intended to convey information is intended to be interpreted in the context of this art historical, art critical, art theoretical backdrop, as opposed to marketing or journalistic uh, stories um, or what have you. And his example was the Brillo Boxes, which are quite famous. Apparently, uh, if we just take his story at face value, the Brillo Boxes were designed by Painter. painter. Uh, they were meant uh, to represent a wave, uh, which was water and cleanliness, uh, but they were also meant to represent the American flag, which is a sense of duty to society. And so we get a duty to cleanliness embodied in the design of the frill <laughs> boxes. So yeah, that's funny, right? It, but but interestingly, notice SOS are also uh, cleaning pads, and in SOS we have this nautical duty uh, to cleanliness. And Mister Clean uh, was, you know, a bosun, someone who would have been on the on the um, on the deck scrubbing uh, the salt off all the time. And so this sort of nautical duty to cleanliness actually was part of this. 1950s i suppose uh, marketing campaign all these things embodied this nautical duty to cleanliness so what disambiguates artworks from non-artworks in this context is the way we categorize them is the way we frame them and the thought in my book that the thread that runs through my book is that contextualizing in this way because of this diagnostic recognition framework for uh engaging art in this biased competition theory of attention the way that shapes perception contextualizing in this way actually changes the way we perceive the artwork it's not doesn't just change the way we collect information off its surface but it it somehow shapes and controls our phenomenological experience with the artwork and so it gives us this sort of this sort of deep story. So I haven't gotten to Walton yet, but I I think I've gotten into the weeds a little bit. So I wanted to take a a break and a breath. I can keep going about Walton or uh, you can Well, let let me,
1: let me, yeah, I was going to uh, just sort of ask a follow-up question then. Um, um, You know, it it seems like uh, in a way uh, that what makes an artwork a work of art, you know, as opposed to some other, you know, object that that is designed, you know, and made, whatever, um, is in a sense, you know, again, in the, in the mind of the perceiver and that the very same object, uh, you know, perceived by somebody who doesn't have this knowledge, doesn't, you know, for whatever reason, doesn't perceive it that way. For that person, it is not art. And for somebody, of course, who has the requisite, knowledge categories you know familiarity with conventions and so forth it is a work of art so it's it so the the uh the objection if you want to put it that way it's not really an objection it's just um it it looks like it makes the not art non-art distinction um relative to particular tokens or particular um, viewings, let me say, you know, not even a particular object, but the particular viewing of the object, it is a work of art when seen by one person, but it's not a work of art perceived by another person.
2: I think that that's, um, an awesome observation. Uh, and it is an objection that's brought and I'm going to see if I can answer it. I don't, you know, I haven't ever really thought of it quite the way you've expressed it. Um, But it is, it does seem to be a problem. Uh, Well, maybe it's
1: not a problem, you know? I mean, maybe that's what you want. uh, But I'm just saying that just seems to follow, okay?
2: Right. So uh, there there are a range of different ways I I, I might get at uh, this. But I want to point out uh, that in philosophy of art uh, and also in uh, discussions of artifact uh, perception sometimes – uh, the intentions of the creator are critical in determining the identity of right. the object itself. So it might be that the person perceiving it misses what it is, uh, but that doesn't change uh, what the artifact is in, the, in this kind of sense. I, I don't know if, if that's too strong for the way you framed your question. But so uh, I can remember a conversation not so long ago uh, with um, a graduate student that became deeply frustrated uh, with me, and I hope that she, that we solved that before the end of the conversation, uh, because this particular uh, uh, person thought that the fact that their dad really loved paintings because they were blue, um, Picasso's blue period, <laughs> was, was something that I would object to. Yeah, right. Was, was something oh, that I, I would object to. Uh, and so, what uh-huh. I suggested um, was that the the point of the argument here is that neuroaesthetics, people working in neuroesthetics, when they miss this contextual aspect to the identity of art, of um, artworks as artifacts, have uh, missed where the location of the art is, right? They're seeing them as perceptual artifacts, neutral perceptual artifacts, and they've missed the critical piece of what, of what makes them artworks, because the critical piece of what makes them artworks is the way they're being used to express ideas within the context of this of this background so it's not what we see in the artwork that matters for its identity as art but rather it's what that that we see shows us this is sort of danto's uh way of thinking it so another way i, I have a thinking but i think that this gets to the question and i think it probably gets back to, to walton is that i could walk into a gallery uh, uh with a crowd of people a bunch of strangers and i could be standing there i, I kind of this is one of my uh, favorite things to do sometimes is to walk into a gallery and hear how other people are interacting with artworks. We could be standing in front of a Van Gogh and someone could say, that painting is so awesome. It reminds me of my children when they were young and they were finger painting. Now that's absolutely a way to appreciate a Van Gogh. <laughs> right? There's no reason that's not a way to appreciate Van Gogh. It's not a way to appreciate Van Gogh as the artwork that it is. I right. see. To, okay. To appreciate the Van Gogh as the artwork that it is is to recognize that the value of a Van Gogh has something to do with what his use of expressionist, expressionist breaststrokes and and hue, right, and, and color did to our understanding of the expressive capacities of art and, and also, you know, the emotions he was expressing. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not wrong to appreciate an artwork because it has a subjective uh, meaning to you, but it's not to appreciate it as the expressive act, as the artifact it was designed for. The, the other example I kind of like is that there's a piece by Robert Morris that I'll confess I don't really understand because I haven't done the legwork I should do to get the backstory to sort of see exactly what's going on. Uh, but, it, it you know, when, when MoMA was under reconstruction, when I was a teenager in New York, it was in these sorts of basement galleries, and you'd walk in and there was this rope hanging off the wall with a piece of concrete at the end of it. Uh, and you can imagine seeing it and being like, oh, I hate PE. <laughs> or, mm. oh, PE P was awesome. The only thing I was ever really good at was shimmying up a rope. And that's, of course, a way to appreciate that artwork because it's an artifact that has some personal meaning to you. But Robert Morris in those days uh, was a minimalist artist. And what he was trying to do was build artworks out of industrial materials that utterly resisted. The capacity to be modulated and modified by the artwork so they had no inner psychological meaning there was no sort of aesthetic genius or expressive genius because the artist was able to manipulate paint in this crafty way rather they were just these bits of ordinary um very sort of ordinary objects that had really strong identities put together in a pattern uh, of some sort Uh, so they were really anti-aesthetic and they weren't about the subjectivity of experience they were you know, about these sort of minimalist stories about how everything was transparent um, in the surface of the object. And so the thought that I have, and I think this ties into Walton a little bit, um, is that if you don't see these artworks against the backdrop of information that they were intended to use to convey to you their point or purpose, um, it's not that you don't see them as artworks, it's just that you've missed the artwork. The artwork can be rendered invisible to you. And in some radical cases, because of attentional biasing, you might literally miss the parts um, uh, that, are, that are are, are, are meaningful. Uh, one of the examples I give for that, and then I, I apologize for getting into the weeds of our history here, uh, is an artwork by Vito Conchi that we're probably, maybe we're all familiar with, I think we're all familiar with. Uh, and Vito Conchi was a performance artist in New York City in the late 60s and the 1970s, when New York was kind of an anxious and disorganized kind of place. Uh, and in this artwork, he leaves his house in the morning. Uh, and what he does is the first person who walks out of a building after he leaves the house is the person he's going to follow. And he follows that person until they go into a building. So as long as they are stay in public space, he follows them. Uh, and I, I think people think of this as a voyeuristic artwork. I think they think of this as an aggressive artwork. I think they think of this as Vito Conchi following someone, and you know the anecdotal stories is that at some point somebody complained about it, and a judge told him he had to you know stop following, stalking people uh, in public. Uh, you can look that up to see if that anecdotal story has any any purchase. However, you might think of it as a voyeuristic story if you think of art in a certain way. Uh, the history of painting is the history of objectifying its subject. Uh, the history of painting is littered uh, with uh, paintings that are of individuals who are presented passively as the object of, gay, uh, of, of a gaze. And in particular, uh, it's uh, littered with women painted as the idealization of beauty who are presented passively in the painting and are the subject of a male gaze. And there was a lot of talk uh, uh, about this for a long time, and, and, and there still is, right? Right. Uh, and it even carries forward into paintings by people like Edward Hopper, Edward Hopper's cityscapes it nearly always involve the painter looking in a window from outside at some character doing something on the inside. There's a voyeuristic sensibility um, uh, to painting, partly because the subject can't can't do anything back. They're just presented that way. So if you think of the history of painting as this history of the male gaze, you might think, boy, you know, Vito Conchi is making a really aggressive statement, or you might just think that it's a little creepy that he stalked people. But in point of fact, uh, Vito Conchi was part of a school of nihilism in performance art in New York City in the early 1970s. It was an anxious, uh, disorganized time, right? There was a lot of personal anxiety uh, about existence, you could think, on the streets of New York, in those days. uh, And in point of fact, the way he frames the act of following people is that he's giving over his agency to that other person, to a total stranger in a public space. And so he's just being led by that person. And sometimes it would get them on the subway and take him from Manhattan out to Queens and to the Bronx. And I mean, I, I forget what the longest one is, but if you look at the pathways, some of them are, are, are really long. And so the idea, the real commentary in that work is a commentary on how modern society um, is this sort of active of control and oppression against the agency of the individual. And when you think of it that way, suddenly the direction, the psychological relationship flips. He's not the aggressor. Right. He's the subject of this activity. Now, you know, when you have conversations with people, sometimes people are skeptical about this. They still think it's a pretty aggressive act. Maybe it was a pretty aggressive act. Some of his other work is pretty challenging. Uh, but here's a, a, a particular case where you, you really get a different phenomenological story about your interaction, understanding and 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 just the formal relationships in the artwork by. Uh, framing it in the right way. So Walton was interested in aesthetic art and, and, and interested in how the the history, an understanding the history of painting changed our aesthetic interaction with uh, paintings that are canonically aesthetic, like uh, Picasso's uh, Guernica, but I think it generalizes to these other stories. And, you know, I have other examples, uh, but I think that's probably a good place to stop because I've been talking for a while.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Um, so uh, you know, you mentioned this, this person who I was not aware of, but in any case, um, so we've been talking or perhaps implicitly thinking to some extent or largely of, of, um, of painting, um, and your theory is, is designed mainly, um, and this is for you to specify, uh, for visual arts, um, or, or I should say, perceptual arts. Excuse me. So, painting, sculpture, dance, music, um, and one of the things that you also mentioned towards the beginning is this: is the idea that you know, and conceptual art. And conceptual art is a sort of notoriously, you know, the category uh, that tends to explode people's heads in terms of you know what's what is a work of art and things like that and that's why you have the institutional theory and and those sorts of things um but a lot of the perceptual features whether it's painting right or you know sculpture or any of these things um are they're standard as, as as Walton might say in some way of of you know again of those categories painting sculpture and so forth um, but perceptual features are usually like you know arguably I mean for some people conceptual art the object doesn't matter at all it's the idea right um, for others you know I mean this is an argument it's not it's not like there is one position here but that's what makes conceptual art really interesting is because nobody really knows what what to do with it, particularly if you, if your focus, and I don't mean you personally, but if one's focus is, uh, is the perceptual properties that are going to convey particular information or whatever whatever it is. Um, But conceptual art, of course, that's usually like not the point. And so how do you see your theory, you know, sort of including, um, you know, conceptual art where, you know, the whole thing if, if, or most of it is, is the idea rather than what you're perceiving. If, if you're perceiving anything. I mean, I, I think of, you know, we have some, you know, uh, a work, a work by Lawrence Wiener. I think that's the way he says it. Um, you know, where it's just like words written on a wall and um, the rest is up to you, really. Um, so So how, do, how does your perceptual you know this this, di- this you know, recognition framework, which is based heavily in, in our perceptual capacities, How does that deal with conceptual art?
2: So I think that's an awesome and great question. So uh, there's a heavy focus in uh, the setup of the model on painting. Uh, and that heavy focus uh, is pragmatic. Uh, it, it's pragmatic because the kinds of abstractions and transformations that have to be made in order to sort of recognize the depth and depth of field and objects in the painting and how those might have been manipulated to convey ideas. Ju- it, it just has a nice mapping to a story about visual perception. Uh, so so I'm just, let, let me just say that uh, painting The the idea of using painting there is largely because painting is used in the literature uh, because it maps to this kind of discussion. So that's a first caveat. Uh, The the second story uh, to tell uh, is the thought that once we think about Arthur Danto, or we think about Noel Carroll, I didn't get to talking about Noel on my On my detour, uh, the way Noel's stuff fits in with the stuff about uh, Arthur Danto is Noel's idea that the way we we parse the form, the composition, not the composition, but the artistically relevant, the artistically salient form of an artwork is we uh, look into it, we look at how it's being used as an expressive device, and that shows us the choices that artists made in building this artifact so that it embodies its meaning in a certain way. So this is sort of a deep part of the communicative exchange. And it certainly is part of Arthur Danto's talking about art as well. Though I don't think Noel would want to be said that he and Arthur said exactly the same thing uh, in, in that context. But once we go this distance, uh, and certainly if we're Arthur Danto, uh, all art is conceptual. So conceptual Yeah, I've art,
1: heard that one. I've heard that one. So, <laughs> I don't know if I buy well, it. I mean, there's obviously a conceptual element, but that's not really the point? I don't know.
2: Well, yeah. it's, it's, the po- I, it's the point of contemporary art, and in, in certainly in the United States and Europe, is that artworks are artifacts for expressing ideas. Now, there is a unique and discrete part, a category of art, called conceptual art. And that unique and discrete category of art called conceptual art really emerged as a way of pointing this out, that the perceptual element of art may not be beside the point. But it's always a tool in the name of expressing an idea. So you have people like Saul LeWitt who wrote sentences art and paragraphs on art. And in that, he says, um, the art is the idea. The the artifact is secondary. It's beside the point. It's working the idea out that matters. And that artwork is just a way of building an artifact to express that idea. He didn't mean that was unique about conceptual art. He meant that about all art. Uh, What's interesting about LeWitt, and then I I have one example, I'll talk about the Weimar, and then I I have an example I I suppose I would like to give you if we have time. Um, Notice that what Saul LeWitt did in order to make his conceptual art is he worked diligently for years, for decades, in thinking out of how to build small, discrete, formal systems so that there'd be no creativity in the way he put those marks down on the, uh, on the canvas, on the, on the sort of wall, but rather there would be some sort of algorithmic pattern that you could see in it so that the artifact itself was an utterly transparent expression of the idea he had thought about in advance. So uh, you might even do something. I used to do this uh, with my students. We would invent a set of marks that were like Solowit marks, and then we'd use a random number generator to build patterns. And then we might even just build a computer program to build Solowitz to project Solowitz o- onto the wall so that we totally eliminated the creativity uh, of the artist in the building of the artifact. The creativity of the artist was all in the construction um, of the idea. But notice all of these artworks are built around artifacts that we go look at in the in the gallery. And the Solowit drawings are frankly very beautiful. They're very aesthetically rich. Uh, so it's a, there's a little bit of a, of a paradox. Now, of course, you were talking about Larry Wiener. Uh, I would have mentioned somebody like John Baldessari. I might have mentioned Barbara, Barbara Kruger or Jenny Holzer. These are all people, or maybe even Jasper Johns, these are all people who made artworks by putting text on the wall. Joseph Boys, Joseph Kasuth. Uh, but what's interesting and unique is that in order to interpret what each of these people meant by putting text on the wall, you need to recognize that that text is put on the wall in their particular style. Because each of these people meant something slightly different by putting the text on the wall. Jenny Holzer, right, with um, LED displays, Barbara Kruger with these sort of magazine uh, mock-up cut ups. Um, I always forget who put the definition of a bed up on the wall with a bed, or I guess it's a chair on the wall with a chair and a picture of the wall. Uh, I think it was Kosuth or Boys, but I don't I don't remember. So all but there's there's stylistic differences in the way these texts are put up on the wall. And so uh you know, the work is really in how you interpret how you get at the idea. The diagnostic recognition framework here doesn't tell you a story about how you perceive the artifact. It tells you a story about how the artifact gives you cues and how to categorize it as a stylistic variant of that person's uh, artwork so that you recognize that that's being used in a way to mean the kind of thing that person uh, might have expressed, right? Or you can think about Robert Berry. So Robert Berry one of my favorite Robert Berry pieces is a text. And the text says, uh, everything in my mind that I'm not thinking about right now. Or so, I, I, maybe that's what it is. Right. And so, you know, here we just have a cue, right? That gives us this sort of gigantic sort of untractable task of thinking about this thing. And every time you think about something, it's not what you're talking about. You have to move on to the next one. Or there was one where we brought everybody out into the desert and released Argonne.
1: Yeah. Well, let, let me let me but, just. I mean, so so I th- I think the problem is that the artifact in you know in many of these cases, and I, I think I mean the the sort of the er example is always Duchamp's fountain, is that the you know the object itself is really kind of inessential to the work. Um, uh, you know, it, it it happened to be a urinal, but. It could have been something else. It doesn't really matter. Um, and, well, you know, why do you, you know, do you, do you, and of course, then the ultimate challenge is to um, convey an idea in some other, you know, uh, I mean, when I'm, you know, if somebody's like talking to you, they're conveying an idea uh, and they're just kind of skipping the, the bit about the object. And since the idea is what matters, well, you haven't missed anything, but you, but you have.
2: Well, I'm not, I'm going to have to think about that for a minute. I think in each of these cases, uh, certainly in the Duchamp case, it might not have mattered which object he chose before he chose it. But now that he's chosen it, that object is not neutral. That object is replete with diagnostic features. Because it, it, we almost can't conceptualize it. I, when I was an art student in New York City, I guess I forgot to mention that I was an art student in New York City for years before. I was a philosophy student first, but then I was an art student after. Uh, I remember somebody coming. Uh, I, I, I really literally cannot remember who it, it was uh, to give a talk to us about how the number of holes in the urinal mattered because because uh, Duchamp was deeply Catholic, and they were the same as the number of apostles, which, which of course it. Well, uh, it's it's awesome, right? They're just trying to impose some diagnostic features on it. Uh, the story, I, I, I don't know the story uh, uh, about the urinal, but I know the apocryphal story about the urinal, which is that Duchamp was betting, uh, you know, that the the show was an open call to the. Curators said they wouldn't refuse any artwork, uh, and he wanted to make this kind of anti-aesthetic statement because he thought art was pretty elitist, and he thought it was impossible that these people wouldn't impose their elite taste. On what artwork was that they wouldn't do this aesthetic thing that if the artwork didn't involve some sort of deep creative thinking about ideas that only a Kantian genius who was a naive savant could possibly have gotten at it wouldn't be art. And and so he just went down the street and bought a urinal and gave it to them. Uh, and because they said that it was an open uh, juried, uh show, they accepted it, but that they uh, exhibited it behind a screen so that you couldn't see it unless you asked about it. Uh, and so in that case, you're right. Uh, the original artwork didn't object didn't matter, but it did matter in the sense that the fact that it was a quotidian object was the clue was the diagnostic cue to you, uh, that it wasn't the kind of artwork that he thought the curators taste would not allow them to accept, um, So I'm not trying to, I I, I hope this isn't coming across that that we're having a conversation where I'm sort of disputing the character of your question. What I'm trying to do is uh, show a little bit the sort of breadth, the way that this uh, model for thinking about our engagement with artworks is fruitful for thinking of uh, these perceptual categories of art, which we ordinarily call the fine arts, Mm -hmm. uh, as as distinct from literary arts or arts that involve, you know, propositional Mm -hmm. thinking. Where I went to college, you couldn't be in a fine arts major, because the fine arts were distinct from the liberal arts, the fine arts didn't involve reasoning, or they involved this other sort of perceptual thing, which Mm -hmm. was an odd, an an odd artifact uh, at Columbia University of the 19th century, but we had others, I suppose. Um, but I'll, I'm just trying to show that, that it can extend to these other things. Of course, what I really ought to do is, is, you know, stop every now and again and just take a breath and notice that, you know, you don't want your model to be able to explain everything. If the, <laughs> if the model doesn't have well, limits, it, right?
1: Right. Right. Well, well, let me, I mean, we're, we're, we're getting close to, to time. Um, so one of, one of the things that I did want to ask, um, <coughs> is, uh, um you know uh, you, you haven't you you mentioned you know various times you know these sort of norms and conventions that are used um that that artists will will employ in order to design the works as they do to convey the messages they want to um mm-hmm. do you see yourself kind of filling out those parts of you know that 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 missing important missing bit Um, Mm. you know, as, you know, now that this part has been written? Uh,
2: So I guess that there there may be three things to say, and I'll probably only remember one of them and speak too long about it. But um, the first thing to say is that uh, when we think about cognitive science and aesthetics, or we think about uh, neuroscience of art, uh, we ought to recognize that we're not trying to build definitions of art. We aren't even necessarily trying to build full theories of art. What we're trying to do is foster interdisciplinary collaboration and the explanation of certain artistic puzzles. Uh, One thing that differentiates philosophy of art from aesthetics is that theories of aesthetics traditionally were these grand theories um, of sort of what art was, grand taxonomical theories, about all the aspects of art. Whereas in philosophy of art, we think about explaining puzzles, different ontological questions about uh, the nature of art. Uh, and so uh, when we think about the marriage of cognitive science and philosophy of art, we should really think about bringing people together to answer uh, particular questions about these, our, our, our engagement um, with art. And, and and in that regard, that really is the plan here. I know that when I get talking and I, and I get excited, I start to think about how we could solve all these problems um, with my model. But part of the uh, purpose uh, um, of the book was to run through a couple puzzles and different uh, domains of art to show how this model might be applied to answering these uh, more local puzzles. So uh, thinking of it that way, uh, if the model doesn't give us purchase and understanding why we value different norms and conventions, why, why uh, art is valuable, why we have these norms for evaluating what's important to us about art, I don't think that's necessarily a problem uh, for the model. It might be that we have this interdisciplinary story where uh, other folks tell us why these norms are important to us, and then we show how these norms um, are uh, applied or used or uh, employed in practice. However, I do think uh, that the story that the diagnostic recognition framework tells about the communicative exchange, the back and forth, Conversation between artists and consumers that allow us to sort of come to a negotiated agreement um, uh, about the norms and conventions governing different ways of expressing ourselves. We think of artists as coming up with a new way of making an artwork and trying it out, and then consumers reacting and responding, and then artists changing the way they're doing it. So, the way this sort of back and forth exchange. Uh, so, so, I do think that there's something in the model that can give us a story about how these norms and conventions emerge in practice, even if they might not tell us um, why, why they're valuable once and for all, even if we you know, have to leave that aside. So you know, maybe it doesn't solve uh, all the stories, but I think it does give us a tale about where we need to look to locate art. And I think it gives us a clearer idea of who we need to invite to the party if we're going to have an interdisciplinary explanation of art. So.
1: Okay, very good. Um, so, last question, uh, and it's sort of following up the one that I just asked. What uh, what's on your horizon now? What what are you working on?
2: Uh, so, uh, there uh, is one thing that I think is conspicuously missing from attentional engines, uh, and you can't put everything into a book unless you, you, you know, write a Hegelian tome of some sort, I suppose. Uh, but what's conspicuously missing is a discussion of expressionist art. Uh, it, although there is some discussion about how dance and music is used to express emotions, a uh, sort of broader treatment of the role of affective perception and the emotions in art, uh, I, I, I think, is something that would be fruitful for uh, for the field to think about. Uh, and there's some interesting research that suggests that affective attention has the same kind of influence on perception as selective attention and feature-based attention and category-based attention. Uh, So one project is a a book on uh, art affect and attention. And the other project uh, that's running in the back of my head is to build out the chapter on uh, concepts and categories of art into a broader treatment of what categories of art might look like uh, and what the sort of model theory of concepts we might want for understanding how it does the work it does and understanding uh, the meaning of an artwork. And, of course, uh, because I came up as a sculptor, there's always a question of why I never write about sculpture. So uh, <laughs> off to the right on my desk is the draft of a journal article on sculpture. So that's the beginning Very of good. something else.
1: Well, I mean, we are, we are out of time. Uh, but um, I appreciate your taking the time to talk about your book. Uh, with New Books and Philosophy. And um, I wish you luck with with the projects that are on or next to uh, your desk. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I look forward to, to seeing some of this stuff.
2: Well, thank you, Carrie. And thank you for having me. That was a great conversation. A lot of fun.
1: Okay, great. Thanks. Bye-bye.